0: Hello, and welcome to the Healthcare Law Today podcast presented by Foley and Lardner. Each month, we'll bring on a different thought leader to discuss current legal trends in the healthcare industry. I'm your host, Judy Waltz, partner and chair of Foley's Healthcare Industry team. It's a pleasure having you join us today. Before we begin our show, I want to remind you to subscribe to Healthcare Law Today, either on iTunes or your preferred podcast app. Please visit our website, at healthcarelawtoday.com. For today's show, I'd like to turn it over to my colleagues, Adria Warren and Alexis Bortniker, to introduce our guest, Dr. Michael Koloje from ADVIT to discuss the current convergence and consolidation in the oncology industry and what that means for the future of cancer care. Take it away, Adria.
1: Thank you, Judy. Uh, My name is Adria Warren and here with my uh, co-host, Alexis Bortniker and our guest. We're really excited to talk to you today about the upcoming Cancer Center Business Summit. It's going to be held in early March, March 2nd to 4th in Washington, DC. And it's a very exciting program, fully co-founded the um, Cancer Center Business Summit 15 years ago, and now it's co-hosted with the Association of Community Cancer Centers, ACCC. And it really is the preeminent conference uh, looking at the business of oncology and it brings together all those that are involved in oncology community oncologists hospitals payors organizations that support uh, cancer and health i.t and digital and new technologies and personalized medicine uh, pharma Um, All coming under one roof and thinking about how to strategize uh, to survive and and take oncology into the future. We are excited this year to actually be able to be in person. Uh, (laughs) We were in person just before the world shut down in March, uh, two years ago, uh, with no known cases of COVID, thankfully. Uh, Last year we were able to put on the program virtually with about a thousand people attending and we are going to be back in person with a stream component this year. Look forward to seeing all of our, our longtime attendees and participants. Uh, so again, I'm Adria Warren. I'm a partner in the Foley and Larner Healthcare Group in the Boston office. I focus on healthcare transactions, provider-provider, provider-hospital affiliations and joint ventures, as you can imagine. We do a lot of that in oncology and we're seeing a lot of that in oncology and, and that's what we're gonna be talking about today.
2: Alexis? Thank you, Adria. My name is Alexis Bortnicker. I'm co-chair of the Fully Enlarged Nurse Payer Provider Convergence Group. I've spent a good amount of time in my practice working with oncology groups as they work through physician-hospital alignment, convergence strategies, and navigation of payment models. I'm very excited to introduce you today to Mike Cologier, a longtime supporter of the Cancer Center Business Summit, member of the CCBS Advisory Board, uh, and a Cancer Center Business Summit panelist this year. Mike is the vice president and chief innovation officer of Advi Health and uh, will be moderating an important panel for us at the summit titled Industry Reconfiguration, Who's the Boss? On this panel, he'll be managing a conversation between key stakeholders, including health plans, health care providers, oncologists really, and health tech about the topic of reconfiguration consolidation. Mike, tell us a little bit about yourself.
3: Yeah, sure, Alexis. So uh, my name is Mike Kolodziej. I'm a medical oncologist. Uh, After finishing my uh, fellowship at the University of Pennsylvania, I uh, was briefly an academic physician and then subsequently went into community practice with the U.S. Oncology Network. Um, I practiced for over 20 years, uh, the majority of those in upstate New York. Uh, During my tenure at U.S. Oncology, in addition to having a busy Private practice, I also was very involved with the uh, uh, US oncology executive team, physician leadership. I was chairman of the PT committee for a decade and part of the executive committee for many years as well. 2013, I left U.S. oncology. I went to Aetna, where I was National Medical Director uh, and was in charge of the oncology programs at Aetna for three and a half years. Subsequently moved over to Flatiron Health for a year and a half. And then for the last four years, I've been working with ADVI, which is a healthcare policy and strategy firm uh, based in Washington, D.C. and Austin, Texas. Uh, Our clients include uh, the gamut, uh, life science companies, both therapeutic and diagnostic uh, and medical device, uh, as well as uh, oncologists, professional societies, uh, as I said, the, uh, the gamut.
1: Thanks, Mike. Can you tell us a little bit about your panel and and how it came to be and who's going to be on it?
3: You know, I think it's fair to say that over the last oh, 10, 15 years, the configuration, the org chart, if you will, for oncology has evolved. So I joined U.S. Oncology in 1998. Uh, It was uh, a practice management company. The 1990s were the era of practice management companies, not just in oncology, but elsewhere. What we saw was that a a not insignificant uh, portion of the oncology practices chose to align themselves with practice management companies because practice management companies were good at management. They were good at billing and coding and minimizing DSOs uh, and... uh, Uh, contracting around the price of drugs and uh, helping you uh, explore ways to diversify your practice if you were not in a CON state, all kinds of stuff to make you better at delivering care at executing on the office management, the community oncology management of oncology. And then uh, what happened was that, oh, uh, the last 10 years or so have seen Um, Sort of a plateauing uh, on uh, the number of practices that choose to uh, pursue practice management uh, strategies over the last decade or so. We've seen a massive increase in the number of uh, uh, oncology practices that are owned or or operated in some sort of professional agreement with oncology practices uh, based in the hospital setting. Uh, So when I started, uh, it was, uh, you know, 80-20, 80% community, 20% hospital-based. But more recently, it's more like 50-50. And the dynamics of an oncology practice working for a hospital are really, really different than the dynamics uh, of working in a freestanding oncology practice, whether or not uh, you're affiliated with a practice management organization. So uh, probably the most common model has been acquisition of the practice by the hospital system, which as you can uh, imagine, uh, dramatically changes the power structure and the org chart. Hospitals uh, have historically liked to acquire oncology practices because the oncology service line is, uh, or can be uh, quite lucrative. Uh, In addition, uh, hospitals have become very facile Uh, at uh, marketing their oncology practices. They've become very facile at taking advantage of certain programs, such as 340B, to maximize their margin. Uh, Typically, hospitals have deep pockets when it comes to capital improvement. So hospitals, uh, they really got into the the cancer game. They really thought this was a good thing. And, And community oncology practices, particularly those in Markets where there were really, really dominant hospital systems or uh, community oncology practices that might have been struggling to survive—they found hospital acquisition to be a to be a safe harbor. Now, it seems to me that that has plateaued a little bit. Um, maybe it's just COVID, but um, what we've seen is that other folks have started to get interested in uh, in uh, inserting themselves into this oncologic org chart. And that actually is the genesis of our panel. Uh, We're gonna address uh, actually uh, three areas. One is the emergence of health plans, uh, specifically big national payers uh, as uh, practice uh, uh, acquisition organizations. Now, we've seen this for a while in the primary care space, uh, but we're gonna see it more and more in the subspecialty space. uh, And we are seeing it uh, specifically uh, in oncology. And we're gonna talk about that. The second novel approach is really, if you will, sort of a outgrowth of the emergence of accountable care organizations. So, you know, accountable care organizations and their close sister Integrated delivery networks uh, dis- have have developed mechanisms by which they attempt to control the subspecialty cost by developing sort of uh, narrow networks, preferred provider uh, organizations that are driven by, if you will, the mothership, and the mothership is driven by primary care physicians by and large. So, uh, for example, we uh, we will have the uh, one Of the founders of an organization called Village MD. Village MD is very interesting because they are building a network of uh, primary care practices around the country. But this network is going to be supported by a network management of preferred oncologists. So we're going to talk about what Village MD sees the future of oncology practice as. Uh, and and specifically what it means for current oncology practices. The third thing we're going to talk about is the evolution of the large academic medical center. Uh, So I think everybody uh, who's listening to this knows very well about the uh, big nationally recognized academic medical centers getting their names out uh, for the purposes of branding. Some of them actually uh, put up uh, brick and mortar Uh, in their regions to provide uh, oncologic practice, theoretically in support of the uh, mothership. But uh, City of Hope uh, interestingly has taken a completely different tack. And so we'll have somebody from City of Hope talking about what they see is the future relationship between uh, oncology practices, specifically community oncology practices, as well as hospital-based practices and a large uh, national, even internationally recognized oncologic practice. So it used to be binary. It's not binary anymore. It's not just hospitals and practices. Uh, It's not even just hospitals practices with or without management companies. It's going to be a whole panoply of new bosses. And they're gonna have certain expectations from a business perspective and they're going to have certain influence over how care is delivered uh, at their uh, practice site partners.
2: Thanks, Mike. I'm sure it will be a very interesting discussion. I think you have some great panelists and some really diverse perspectives. You you touched a little bit on on, on sort of why we're seeing this convergence or consolidation now, and and it's looking different than it did a few years ago when it really was hospital-driven. What is your sense on Why is there an acceleration right now? Is it, you know, there's a lot going on in healthcare. I think obviously COVID has had a big impact. I think, you know, there's a big push to value-based care. There's new technology. What what, of any of these factors do you think are sort of helping to drive this? And and do you think any of them are are particularly more important or more focused than others?
3: Yes. So I believe that a big driver of this is the unrealized potential of accountable care organizations. So, you know, with the, uh, with the emergence of the ACA slash Obamacare, um, we had a universe in which that was gonna be the way we went from fee for service to some sort of truly uh, value-driven care. And, um, you know, we've, we haven't gotten very far And the Accountable Care Organization front. That's my personal opinion. I think I'm sure I could find people who would debate that. But I think there's a lot of people who still like that idea. Uh, It's just that uh, hospitals are, are not really good vehicles for accountable care. Why? Because, shoot, they're conflicted. So now we're seeing the emergence of novel primary care models. And the people uh, who are interested in these novel novel primary care models recognize that they have to get control of cost and quality within their uh, their, uh, panel of patients who have serious chronic medical illness. Or, Or as I've said many times, you can't save money on healthy people. You can only save money on people in which you are spending money. And so cancer patients, as, as I'm sure you're aware, in the commercial population, they only make up about 1% of all commercial uh, claims, uh, which is tiny. Uh, and yet they make up for probably close to 15% of the spend. Uh, and so the health plans recognize they've got to, they've, they really do need to continue to transition to a value-based approach. And, and let's be honest, they're hearing that from the self-insured plan sponsors, from the employers uh, who are really the payer for about two thirds of all Americans with commercial health insurance or are working age. So you know, listen, people still think that there's opportunity to improve quality and control cost uh, via uh, alternative payment models. And uh, they, they just think that uh, there needs to be a different uh, vehicle and the, the three that areas that we're going to talk about are all potential vehicles
1: it's so interesting you know in, in our world too mike we're seeing a lot of more flexibility in the regulatory world and pushes also in reimbursement to try and move towards a more innovation and value-based care arrangements um, and some of that i think the vertical integration that you're talking about and the touch points across the continuum and up and down the supply chain really are, um, I don't know if it's a resulting from or contributing to, or maybe a bit of both. So are there more technologies being adopted as a result of this trend, or do you see it shifting and how technologies will be used and pushing the dial forward?
3: Oh, yes. So uh, let's be very precise in what we mean uh, by technology. I mean, we're not really talking here about what we've sort of traditionally thought about as technology in the oncology space. We're not talking about novel therapeutics. We're not talking about, you know, proton beam. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about here is appropriate understanding and management of risk. And so what we will see, I think for sure, uh, is the emergence of complex, artificial intelligence-driven, care management platforms, uh, novel mechanisms of interacting with patients and, and understanding you know, who's at risk and how we might intervene to reduce their risk. I mean, we're already saying this. And I think some of the startups uh, in the primary care space, some of which are very well known and are publicly traded, uh, are already doing this for their primary care doctors. Uh, we have not yet seen this on an oncology, except in a very, very small area. But uh, if you're in charge of a big organization, let's say you're in charge of Village MD, um, you're going to understand really well what your oncology risk is. And, and that's going to be driven by uh, you know, really sophisticated analytics uh, partnered with really sophisticated care management. That is coming to your neighborhood really soon.
2: Mike, what does this mean for your average community oncologist? How are (laughs) clinicians reacting to this, focusing on this? You know, this is a new way to collaborate, to treat patients. It's a new way to think about what it means to be successful. Um, Is this sort of more paperwork for the oncologist or is this (laughs) a, a more wholesome model that, that can work for folks?
3: So that's a, that's a little bit of a hard question, but as to whether it's more paperwork, probably not. So what does it mean to the average oncologist? I'm not sure what the average oncologist really is. And, and you know, given, the, given my life experience, there's a lot of different kind of subsets of oncology practice. And God knows when, <laughs> when we think about the Cancer Center Business Summit, we try to aim for the majority of these practices. But you know, there are first movers and then there are uh, folks that are influenced highly by their, uh, if you will, uh, business partners or owners. We will see, I think for sure, continued pressure on small to medium-sized oncology practices to become affiliated, associated, with larger organizations. And I've said this for many years, I have continued to be shocked by the fact that there continue to be some practices that have not uh, had interest in engaging. Uh, part of that is geographic, uh, uh, but but I think we will see, first of all, uh, some movement uh, uh, into at least uh, loose affiliations that allow pooling of expertise to allow success in the new model. So that's that's one thing. Second thing is I think the companies that are that are building these new technologies, um, they're gonna be hungry. Uh, they're gonna be hungry for developing relationships with other oncology providers, with health plans, with primary care networks, uh, and they're gonna they're gonna be driven to execute on a really sophisticated product that meets the needs of the marketplace, and that's good. The third thing is we're gonna see, I think, I hope, I pray, uh, some responsiveness in the electronic medical record community to allow easy access to the kind of information that's gonna be required uh, for, among other things, risk stratification, quality measurement and reporting, Uh, we we saw a little movement with the oncology care model down that route, but God knows not nearly enough. Uh, And so I'm I'm hopeful that that's going to happen. I think um, the last thing we're going to see is, uh, and this will probably happen very, very soon, is uh, some indication of what these business relationships contracts might look like. Initially, it will be simple network management, but I would fully expect uh, that we're going to start to see some sort of subcap uh, or episode-based reimbursement. We may see it initially in radiation oncology, uh, but I think we will see it in medical oncology as well. And, and in fact, we have seen some of this already with some of the pilots that have gone on in the last several years. So I, I expect that the oncologists will become comfortable with whatever it takes to be part of these networks. And I, I fully believe that some of the more sophisticated practices and practices affiliated, for example, with these uh, large practice management organizations to jump all over this. They are going to be ready to go right out of the gate. And then we'll see the uh, what happens with the second wave.
1: That's so interesting. And we do, we are seeing a a number of practices going on to the national platform management model that you're referencing as an alternative to hospital alignment or choosing between the two. And I do see any particular pros or cons on on the various models.
3: Well, yeah, there's a lot of people unhappy with the hospital model. (laughs) I think there's a, there's a long list of practices that, uh, uh, you know, after the honeymoon was over, they uh, they weren't so keen on how things were going. You know, I think we should be very clear that the continued interest of hospitals is going to be solely driven by the continued economic success of their cancer services business line. So let me paint a scenario for you. The government prevails in 340B pass through Medicare gets a piece of that 340B discount. Commercial health plans jump out uh, all over it and attempt to get their share of the 340B discount. And the current site of service um, kind of policies that virtually every national health plan has put in place are successful, steering high margin patients, and boy, it sounds terrible to use that term, but let's say patients receiving chemotherapy, which is billed and collected at a very lucrative level by hospital-based programs. Let's say those site service programs are successful and the arbitrage that health plans um, have been subjected to by hospital-based programs disappears overnight. I think all of a sudden hospitals are just not so interested in the game anymore, Uh, in which case, Lots of things change. <laughs> Lots of things change really, really fast.
2: Mike, if you're a provider, a community oncologist, and you're you're starting to see these trends in, in your in your area, in your in your network, you know, what are what are the questions these providers should be asking when they're talking to the health plans who are trying to acquire practices or large ACOs who you know, are starting to have interest in oncology because they didn't for a long time. It was all primary care driven. You know, what are some of the things that they need to be thinking about as they choose their next steps? I know that there's a lot, you know, a lot of this is market driven and different markets have different issues to deal with, Um, you know, reimbursement models that have made their way into the market. But what are the good questions? What do we, what does an oncologist need to be thinking about and assessing some of these options that are coming into play?
3: Yeah, I, I think the first thing that uh, oncology practices uh, should recognize is that maybe for the first time in a really long time, the health plans, the ACOs, the, the, the potential new bosses, if you will, they understand that a good community oncology practice is worth their weight in gold. And And again, I hate to keep making it about the money. I think that if you If you're a practice, you should think about, number one, how can I prove that I really am good? Number two, how can I analyze uh, how I'm delivering care and what the opportunities are for me to be both the high quality uh, as well as uh, appropriate cost? Notice I didn't say low cost appropriate cost provider. I, I, I want to be recognized for being as good as I am. And, and I, I'm telling you that I think, I feel very strongly that in the past, when hospitals acquired a practice, they were really only interested in what their case mix was, what their payer mix was, and where they were located geographically. That is not what the future looks like. The future looks like, I want, I want to include in my network, a really good, really sophisticated, really collegial, really thoughtful um, practice that can partner with me in managing these really complicated patients because to be perfectly honest, I'm not smart enough to manage them myself. So I I think actually we could be headed towards uh, an even more golden age, if you will, for community oncology practices that can execute. It could finally be that quality uh, is not simply arrived at by attestation, which has driven me crazy for the longest time. Uh, We're gonna be able to actually put some meat on those bones. And you know why that's good? Because I'm a a consumer, I'm a patient. I I wanna go to that best doctor. I, I don't care who's got the biggest billboards. I don't care who's got the most commercials during the Yankees game. Uh, I I care about who really can, can document that they're given the best care. And so we'll see, I hope, the rise of consumerism and patient choice that is supported by data. And that would be just wonderful.
1: It's a nice vision. Speaking as the patient, <laughs> that's, I, I really appreciate what that means for me and for oncologists. What about the hospital and all of this? What, how do they approach strategically this, this vision of a, a new normal?
3: Well, they can change. So the answer to that question is, uh, let's see what City of Hope has to say. Um, because I think the, the leadership at City of Hope uh, sometimes I don't understand what they're doing, <laughs> and I don't know why they're doing what they're doing. But I have to tell you that makes me think I'm dumb, not them. And I I, I really look forward to hearing what they have to say about what the um, what the what the uh, academic medical center, what the comprehensive cancer center of the future looks like. And you know, it could be a, a bunch of things. But one thing I don't think it's going to be is giving adjuvant chemotherapy for breast cancer. That's what they're doing now, right? That's what they're doing now. And that's fine. I'm sure they do it just great. Uh, I think it'd be almost impossible to prove that they do it better than most community oncology practices. But there are things that they definitely do better. I've been interested for a very, very long time in what, what exactly is a center of excellence and excellent at what? So, you know, we have interesting data regarding things like complex surgical procedures, like Whipple procedures, and complex radiation oncology, like treatment of head and neck cancer. And, you know, there there is clearly a lane where, honestly, academic medical centers or, or, or good quality medical centers, community medical centers. Now, here's the question. How do we get from here to there, right? How do we get from where we are now to that future state? Uh, and I'm not sure I know the answer to that question, but City of Hope is going to help us understand it the first week of March. So I'm looking forward to it. I think hospitals have
2: have some thinking to do as they as they figure out next steps for a lot of reasons. You know, I'm going to ask, you know, a tough question, uh, the crystal ball question, but as we think through the potential impact that these vertical integration and well, just the integration generally can have on, you know, the delivery of cancer care on the, the patient experience on the change in the value proposition, I think of, of how, how the care is delivered and perceived and paid for, you know, it makes me wonder where do you see us, you know, in 2030, AMC CBS 2032, what, what do you think may be some successes? What do you think we'll be talking about? And, and I realize, you know, what from this can can carry us into the future? What will oncology look like?
3: So that's a that is, as you know, a hard question. I, I think that a couple of things are very likely. One is we talked a bit about technology from the perspective of the health plan and paying for care. I, I think we're going to have a dramatic, dramatic improvement in how we use technology to actually manage individual patients. So, you know, we've had this love affair with personalized medicine, precision medicine, whatever you want to call it for many years now. And it has historically had a definition around, let's just say the genetic code. That is just too simplistic a view of personalized medicine. And I think We will have, even though uh, attempts at this have maybe not succeeded so wonderfully, uh, we will see a universe in which real world evidence, experience, uh, a, a rapid learning system that involves learning from every patient we take care of will allow us to truly personalize care based on all kinds of clinical elements, you know, mutational status, uh, pharmacogenomics and pharmacokinetics, social determinants of health. Uh, All those things will will start to consolidate into a truly personalized approach for patients. And I think the first thing we'll see, I'm pretty sure, is, integration of sort of the genomic information into the rest of the clinical, uh, clinical database. So you could say to me, Mike, we're already doing that. And I would say, yeah, right. So right now we've got a bunch of single mutations for which we predict either a high likelihood or low likelihood of response to a particular therapeutic agent. But it largely exists outside of pretty much everything else. Um, and, and yet we know that that linear single gene model, it's wrong. It's just not right. And so I would expect that'll be the first thing we see, but then we'll actually see all kinds of other stuff that comes into the equation for helping us manage individual patients. And it should be available at point of care. I used to tease some of my colleagues that I want to see a world in which I'm entering into this clinical information and I'm seeing on my computer screen, various appropriate therapeutic options, uh, their likelihood of a success and um, their likelihood of, of, toxicity or failure. Um, and that we should have that. We, we can have that. We've already got that in, in the rest of the, of, of the internet. We need to have it in medicine. That's one thing. Second thing is we are going to be paid differently. Uh, I think we will see the, uh, Elimination of fee for service, we will see the elimination of buy and bill. We will see see episode-based reimbursement. We may even see capitation in the sense of population management, because I think our uh, our science, our actuarial science, will advance to allow for case mix discrepancies that were magnified, if you will, during our experience with the oncology care model. The third thing uh, is, I, I think uh, we will clearly see a much closer Association between whoever the boss is, uh, and the oncology practices, and the quality of care they're delivering, and and the way they're paid. Uh, so we will truly come to some accountable care model, which I think all of us should be happy about. Now, you know, I, some of the folks listening to this maybe are community oncologists uh, uh, will think I finally have gone off the deep end and lost my mind. But but you know, I think we should not be scared of this. We. We shouldn't be threatened of this. We shouldn't be sanguine in the way we're delivering care now. Because, you know, everybody's got room to improve. And when, when you think about your patients and what their expectations are, uh, when you think about the incredible pace with which science has progressed, hell, you know, when I was in practice, I never gave a patient a PDL1 drug. And I, I didn't leave really practice that long ago. I mean, that's un, that's unbelievable, right? Now, you give PD-L1 drugs to almost every cancer, as best I can tell. So the things are changing very, very fast, and they're going to change further, and we should not be scared or intimidated by that. We should embrace it. We're going to be better at what we do, and our patients are going to benefit from it, and that's the most important
1: thing. That's a, a perfect vision and I think a great note to end on. So thank you, Mike, for your time um, and for discussing the your upcoming panel and the summit and the, the world of oncology today. Um, and now we'll hand it back to Judy.
0: Thank you, Adria and Alexis, and thank you, Dr. Koloje for a fantastic episode. If you're interested in finding out more about the upcoming Cancer Center Business Summit, a link will be provided in this episode's description. We want to thank everyone for listening to the Healthcare Law Today podcast, your connection to timely legal updates in the healthcare industry. Healthcare Law Today is a monthly program, and we encourage you to subscribe to this podcast or to Foley's Healthcare Law Today blog at healthcarelawtoday.com. If you like this show, don't forget to subscribe and be sure to rate us five stars. Until next time on the Healthcare Law Today podcast, I'm Judy Waltz at Foley & Lardner. We appreciate you joining us.